So we are keeping our promise of being back on a regular schedule. Uh, yes, we are. One week later, here we are. Um, this also lets us do topical stuff, I think, more. Um, yeah, I think there's a danger in that, but I'm also uh, into it because it is context. I mean, there's a danger if it's a little too specific, but like today's topic, which is going to be a brief history of NATO, I think it's it's it'll be relevant even once we're beyond the current crisis. I agree. I don't think it's a thing where, you know, a year from now, this is going to be like, well, what was that episode about? Yeah, what's um, NATO? What's NATO? <laughs> well, that is kind of what we're answering today. What's NATO? Well, we are answering that question, right? Yes. Um, well, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about NATO. All right. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So, I don't know what the weather's like in Florida. It is gorgeous here today in sunny San Diego. It is truly sunny. March is a glorious time in Southern California. It's gorgeous here. Really, really pretty out. It's like 82 degrees, sunny, Ugh. no humidity. 82? Oh, so Yuck. Nice. It's so nice. Gross. Like just baking it. Ugh. I'll take my 74 degrees, please. Anything under 90, I'm good with. Okay. Well, so that gives you about a two-month window now. Right. By the end of April, you're going to be above 90. Oh, yeah. I hate that. But anyway, I'm enjoying it while it's here. I'm, in, oh, good. I'm enjoying it. Are the azaleas blooming? Yes, they are. The magnolias? haven't seen the magnolias yet. Those, I think, come a little bit later. But The dogwoods? Yeah, they're not the dogwoods yet, but everybody's allergies are going nuts because we're about to. The cars are covered in pollen and stuff like that. What about the red red buds? I don't. I haven't noticed any. I don't know. Oh, okay. I have to look around more, but it is spring for sure here. So fun. Anyway, excellent. Well, um, so the world. <laughs> the world. I mean, wow. I wow, think wow, wow. I had so many students approach me the last three weeks about this, about questions related to what's going on in, in Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I wanted to kind of do this episode is like, there's really, I am surprised at how little the general public actually knows about the context for what's going on there right now, how easy it is for different groups to kind of manipulate the narrative. Um, Because we have a couple of competing narratives, right? Um, I mean, Putin and Russia's line is that NATO is aggressively seeking to expand and encircle Russia. And that Russia has, is putting a stop to this kind of, neo-imperialist expansion by NATO. And right-wing conservative Republicans in the United States buy into this. Well, there was the spouse of a prominent conservative podcast and talk show host (laughs) who last night, was it last night or the night before, she asserted that Ukraine was not even a thing until 1989. She's somebody's wife? Um, yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I don't want to refer to her by name because it's kind of like Voldemort. Voldemort. Um, uh, but that just goes to show like just an insane ignorance. Well, and I, will, and I will call out somebody specifically. And fortunately, some of the people who are on Fox are starting to call him out as well. Tucker Carlson, pretty vile, pretty vile the other day when he said, why should he care about people dying in Ukraine? Oh, wow. Um, And that's, uh, I don't care. No matter what 
position you take on this, that's a vile perspective to have. Anybody dying anywhere is tragedy. At the same time, um, you know, if we're going to say we support democracy and we support upholding democratically elected governments around the world, we have to kind of put our money where our mouth is and you can't pick and choose. Um, Putin's an authoritarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's interesting is when we have a conversation about NATO today and the history of it, so much about NATO lies in um, establishing an alliance to combat ideology, right? It's like we're trying to combat communism and communist ideology But what's interesting about Putin and about the Soviet Union is that it's not really a communism. Well, but NATO was never about just about communism, though, right? If you go back, it's about fighting ideology, isn't it? It's about fighting radical ideologies that create kind of totalitarian states that Mm -hmm. turn to war as the main means of of expansion. And it's, it's about preventing another world war. Because it's founded in 1949, right after the Second World War, and it's about not wanting to repeat that, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do we want to cover that early bit there? Well, so the United States. I mean, it's. I won't be my typical self and take us back to Rome. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I will say this, though, the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One. Yes. The United States has the opportunity to participate and probably even lead the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. Um, The U.S. Senate decides that they're not going to do that. We're very isolationist. I think they also, it was vindictive against Wilson too, I think. Probably. Um, So the United States is not part of that organization. Britain and France kind of take the lead they eviscerate Germany. They leave Japan mm-hmm. and Italy out of. They basically cut them out of the roles that both those countries felt they deserved after that conflict. Um, and in many ways. Those foreign policy failures around that League of Nations sets the foundation for World War Two. Yeah, it paves the way for the second world war to happen. And I think I've said this before on this podcast, I'll say it again, is that I think when we look back on it in several hundred years, I think it's going to be seen as one conflict, yeah. right? Because you can There's really see how those are bridged. There's a pause, but like they're so connected in terms of kind of laying the groundwork after the, you know, the treaty of Versailles and um, the league of nations kind of lays the groundwork for a lot of resentment amongst the countries that then become the Axis powers during the second world war. So, I mean, you get, um, you have that conflict and I think coming out of it, out of world war two, even before world war two is over, You start to get these high-level meetings, usually between the United States, Great Britain, and and the Soviet Union, trying to figure out what the post-war world is going to look like. And pretty quickly, there's, you know, there's a division that starts to form. Who causes the division? That's up for debate. Churchill's not happy that Stalin and Roosevelt are kind of in the driver's seats for these conversations. Well, in the alliance between the Soviet Union and the allied nations during the Second World War is tumultuous to say the least, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back Well, they initially forth. have, right, they initially have an alliance. They have a treaty with Germany. Exactly. And so it's never like, oh, well, they're just great friends. Like a lot of times, like the United States and Great Britain are kind of go hand in hand, right? But the Soviet Union's role in that, especially in the post-war world, it's not... They were never friends to begin with. It was the enemy of my enemy is my friend at that mm-hmm. point. And then when it ended, there wasn't going to be a consensus about what the post-war world would look like, particularly mm-hmm. between those two powers. So what I find interesting is the United States and other Western European powers um, kind of have this dialogue. And the United States decides, I think this is 
mostly Roosevelt. Um, and once he's dead, Truman and kind of people in the State Department push for this. They decide the U.S. can no longer be an isolationist power. Right. They they actually have to lead world power, world affairs, and they get involved in this this uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Now, what's interesting, the Portuguese and the British will say NATO is just the latest form of a kind of a peaceful coexistence the United Kingdom and Portugal have had for centuries. They have the longest existing treaty on earth, I think, at this point, that's still active. So it's just like new people signed on to an well, because Right, because Portugal and the United Kingdom are um, original signers of NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the whole idea is that... Um, European peace and stability is paramount. You can only have that if you limit Soviet expansion and the spread of communism, that you um, clamp down on the rise of nationalist ideologies that can easily become kind of totalitarian states. And North America has a vested interest in the affairs of Europe. In the affairs of Europe. That's the huge part of it, right? Because there's only two countries, um, right, in North America who, I mean, out of the three, right, uh, who, well, the three big ones. Like, anyway, the uh, there's only two countries in North America out of the countries in North America that are a part of it. And, like, not surprisingly, it's Canada and the United States. Mm-hmm. And what, what do Canada and the United States have in common? And why would other countries be maybe well, left off of that? Well, I mean, so here's the thing. Spain is not an original signatory of NATO. Um, Spain, since the Spanish Civil War, has been ruled by um, Franco, who is a totalitarian kind of right-wing dictator. He's a fascist. Um, and they are not original signatory on this treaty. Canada and the United States are both culturally tied to Great Britain, um, specifically Western Europe more generally. Um, but there are strong cultural connections across the There Atlantic. are a lot of countries in North America who have ties to Britain. Besides the United States and Canada? Mm-hmm. Are you talking about like Jamaica? Yeah. I don't think they're an independent country yet. So we're talking 1949. I don't think they're an independent country at this point. They're still a colony. I think most of those are still colonies. Barbados. Dominican uh, Republic is not right at that point. Well, the Dominican Republic has this odd relationship with the United States where, yeah, the U.S. and Central America. Right. Puerto Rico is a protectorate of the United States. But then we have like Honduras and Guatemala. Um, We do. and But they have less connection to Britain. Um, And the United States is really, this is about preventing the rise of another Nazi Germany, but also preventing the expansion of the Soviet Union by kind of concerted, sustained North American, and by North American, they mean Canadian and American, or uh, United States presence in Europe and involvement in European affairs. Um, It's closely tied to the Marshall Plan, which is the European Recovery Program. Um, you know, these countries are bankrupt and literally in ruins at the end of the war. And the United States, fortunately, decides, you know what? We should probably just shouldn't leave them piles of rubble. Because the United States, again, there is, it's novel that they, that the United States becomes involved Mm-hmm. on the world stage. And I think for many people now, it's kind of, if you don't know history, it's kind of hard to believe that there was a time where the United States just really took a back seat and was the isolationist kind of thing. Like we're not going to get involved in anything. We don't want to get involved. They had to be dragged into world war one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, you know, to now to think about it now, like, well, there was a time where the United States wasn't involved in world affairs it's kind of weird to think about, but there becomes this vested interest in Europe um, and the, you know, for economic reasons, et cetera. But also 
in you know the world the second world war ends in 1945 nato is not founded until 1949 and it's it's founded in reaction mm-hmm. to the proliferation and detonation of nuclear weapons on mm. behalf of the russians the military part of nato the explicit military rules of nato the treaty itself is signed april 4th 1949 um, but I think it's in response to Soviet, mm, what's considered as Soviet aggression, Soviet potential expansion. Soviet aggression and expansion. S- well, so 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 you get the rise of these communist parties in the ruins kind of of Eastern Europe. So February of 49, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia overthrows the democratically elected government in that country and takes control. And the Soviets back this. Um so there's this real fear that they're going to do this, that they are going to kind of go through and overthrow these democratic governments in this post-war Europe unless something's done. At the same time, um, as kind of Western Germany is created, there's this blockade of Berlin that the Soviets enact, and the United States leads kind of the Berlin airlift, which is you know flying at everything Berlin needs to survive as a city. Um, so there's this, there's that, which leads to kind of the initial creation of NATO, but then, but then you have the detonation of an, uh, an autonomous weapon by the Soviets in 49. Um, and you have the outbreak of the Korean war and this in, in 1950 in 1950. And this accelerates um, the creation of a military command structure within NATO, the creation of a military headquarters outside of Paris near Versailles. Symbolism is rife. Um, uh, and do you know who the first Supreme Allied commander of Europe was? It's, uh, Eisenhower? It's Eisenhower. Dwight yeah. D. Eisenhower. Right. He becomes kind of the first head of this command structure. Sometimes I think you're trying to trick me. And I'm like... I no, the answer. No, <laughs> the answer. no, you know, these things like don't <laughs> second guess yourself. Um, so, you know, in April 49, when the initial treaty is signed, the most obvious thing it has about military aggression is, you know, the Article 5. And you may if you're listening to kind of events now, you might be hearing Article 5, particularly as kind of Russian missile strikes get closer to the Polish border. Wow. Um, Article five is the idea that an armed attack against one or more allies of NATO shall be considered an attack against all of them. And that's what was invoked after nine 11. Right. And that each ally will take quote, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force in response. Um, Now, what this does is it means a country can't be the aggressor and then depend on NATO backing. It's only if they're the target of an attack. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, we can have a whole thing about Britain and France and the Suez crisis. uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which is this other thing in 1954, which is... There's a reason NATO doesn't have to get involved in that because Britain and France are the aggressors. Who's the aggressor, exactly. Um, it's also the point those two countries become footnotes in foreign policy, really. Um, but uh, so NATO gets um, established, the Russians, uh, the Soviets detonate a nuclear weapon, the United States kind of monopoly on nuclear weapons is over. And we start to get this proliferation of nuclear weapons and um, cue the Cold War, the cue, the Cold War. And NATO has this policy of massive retaliation. Mm-hmm. Basically, if the Soviets seek to expand or strike into any NATO member, NATO will respond with nuclear weapons and, and that, collective retaliation. Right. right. And that works until the Soviets have technology that really frightens people. And this is what I find really fascinating. So 1956, the Soviets launch a satellite, the first satellite, Sputnik. Sputnik. And this is devastating. Um, 
This is devastating for um, kind of NATO's previous ideas about security. Also, I just noticed in my notes, 56 is the Suez crisis, not 54. Um, so the Sputnik means the Soviets can just as easily put a nuclear warhead on those rockets as they can a satellite. And what this means now is they can deliver nuclear weapons theoretically anywhere in the world. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's, there's an argument to be made after 56, as it's obvious that anybody can get of use these things. Um, there's an argument to be made that this is the point where nuclear war kind of becomes something that's not going to happen. Because if it does, it'll mean the end of the world. Um, mutually assured destruction. Now that that formally doesn't become a policy till a little bit later. But what I find is interesting is that 56, you have Sputnik and you get the acceleration of the Cold War, but then NATO starts to take a very different role in the 60s. The US and the Soviets are at each other's throats on many issues, including Cuba and Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, and NATO starts to come in um, and like mediate these relations on some level. Um, because I think for European member states and NATO, they realize if there is a war, if there's a World War III, it's on European soil. They're ground zero for it. Exactly. Uh, so they actually have a reason to kind of <laughs> help avoid it. Yes. Um, it's during the 60s also that France withdraws from the military structure of NATO. Um, and this it is stays kind of in, where you start getting a lot of um, kind of trash talk about France, right? Mm -hmm. Being cowards, etc. Even though like we had always had a really great alliance with the French and they helped us so much during the revolution and everything. It's at this moment where you really start to see that um, stereotype of the French as cowards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we get... Uh, the Prague Spring in 68. Um, there's this massive uprising in Czechoslovakia. Remember, Czechoslovakia was this important country early on in the history of NATO because it helped kind of spark the treaty initially as their democratically elected government was overthrown. Mm -hmm. The Prague Spring, you get these protesters and people around the world are kind of waiting to see if NATO's going to intervene. Well, NATO's treaty obligations they they are not bound to intervene. Czechoslovakia was not a member state. Um, and if any single country decided to intervene on Czechoslovakia's behalf, no other country would have to have participated. And we see this had happened previously in Hungary in 56 as well, is that, you know, there was a Soviet crackdown in these countries and NATO just kind of let it happen because they weren't a member state. Um, so like the exclusivity of this club, though, this is kind of what I was trying to get at before. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a very white thing, number one. It is. And there's economic rewards. There's rewards of um, coalition safety for specific places, right? And so like this kind of goes back to 1948 prior to the founding of NATO with the Marshall Plan, right? Like the United States just giving huge amounts of economic aid um, to Western European countries, Southern European countries, um, you know, trying to kind of starting this whole club out and leaving behind countries that like had in incredible amounts of destruction in them in the wake of the war. Middle Eastern countries that had been invaded for their oil, North African countries that had been, you know, kind of also saw war, right? I mean, the, the club 
it kind of rests on like Western European white kind of, right? I mean, it's not. So you say this is like the colonizers club? Kind of. Yeah. I am saying that it's the colonizers club. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because I think the cold war, there's a decision not to have a war in Europe but to have these proxy conflicts in the right. global south. And not, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Proxy wars. And, but, but also proxy wars in the Middle East. Well, I would, I would argue. in Vietnam and in Korea. And, I would and argue the middle. I would argue the Middle East is part of the global south. The global but, south doesn't mean south of the equator. I think it means south of. Yeah. There's a line that connects kind of the United States, Europe, and Russia. And anything south of that is theoretically the global south um well so there's also this this is also the moment where you have the establishment of this idea of first world second world and third world countries Mm -hmm. and first world countries are part of the western bloc the western alliance nato members second world countries are part of the eastern bloc soviet etc and third world countries are like you're not even important enough to be involved in this debate but you can have proxy wars there. You can, you have, can have proxy wars there. You, and it's like, it's interesting. It's like the term first world country. It's like we, in, we invented that term and called ourselves first world country. Right. right? Yeah. And, and it's so dependent upon membership in NATO, alliance, military coalition, economic coalition. But it's all in an attempt to rebuild Europe, which the United States has a vested interest in the region. Mm-hmm. And it's culturally, right? That's what it like. kind of boils down to like a cultural investment in that region. Because it's like the United States has economic investment in so many regions, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the Middle East with oil. But it they have a, the United States has a vested interest culturally in European culture and particularly Western European culture. And so like that's, it's the colonizers club. I like that you told me what I was even trying to say is like it's a colonizers club and it's very dependent on um the you know membership into that club is dependent on um romance language or you know latin you know um germanic languages right well the the uh, the charter itself and the original agreement kind of specifies you have to be a european state or in north america you have to, so you have to be it's, vested in this North Atlantic. Security. So that means, though, even that a place like Australia, although it's a um, an ally, is actually it's a not partner. A part of the it's club. called a global partner. So, so I think it's useful if I kind of. Um, yeah. So the original signatories, in alphabetical order. This is not like in like Delaware first order for the Constitution. <laughs> Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg. Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, United Kingdom, and the United States. Those are the original signatories. Mm -hmm. Um, In the early 1950s, Greece and Turkey come in. In 1955, a very kind of momentous moment, West Germany comes in, Mm -hmm. which is very symbolic, right? I mean, and that's a pretty brief period. Ten years after the end of the war. Yeah, the forgive and forget kind of comes The in. country that was like the threat yeah. in that Enemy war. Enemy number one. Is now part of this alliance. Right. And then we go a long time through the entire 60s and 70s with no new members. Mm-hmm. We do have global partners that develop, right? We have a global partner with South Korea. We have a global partner with ship with Japan. We have a global partnership with Australia, New Zealand. And Japan's interesting, too, because they are also an enemy number one in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. But it's because the United States absolutely topples everything about Japan and then Mm -hmm. goes and rebuilds their country from the ground up that they're like, okay, now you're on our side. Mm -hmm. So it's not until 82 that we get a new member of NATO. And it's Spain. It's after Francisco Franco dies. Then it's really the colonizers club. And well, yes, but Francisco Franco dies. So this totalitarian leader is gone. So Mm -hmm. now Spain can be welcomed in Mm -hmm. to this membership. Um, There are parallels between NATO and the development of the European common market, which later becomes the EU. Right, right. The European Union. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of overlap between the two, right? The EU has no military 
wing, right? The EU is an, is not a military organization. NATO is explicitly military and defense. And so I, it makes sense that there's, you know, um, that you would see similar membership in both. But then we don't get any more kind of movement until the collapse of communism. And even then, it takes almost 10 years. Um, I mean, in 1987, Ronald Reagan famously gives the speech where he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And by 89, you have kind of this cascade effect of communist regimes collapsing all over Eastern Europe and eventually the Soviet Union imploding. But it's a long time before any of those former Eastern European countries are invited for membership. And what I find interesting, so in 99, you get the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland to come in. What I find interesting is this. Um, there are some myths you may have heard bandied about <laughs> on um, uh, about, you know, who can, who can, all these things. First of all, end of the Cold War, NATO never promised Russia they would not expand into Eastern Europe. Well, there was never a treaty. And in fact, Mikhail Gorbachev in 2014 clarified Quote, the topic of NATO expansion was not discussed at all, and it wasn't brought up in those years. I say this was full responsibility. Not a single Eastern European country raised the issue, not even after the Warsaw Pact ceased to exist in 1991. Western leaders didn't bring it up either. So nobody talked about it. So there was no ban on it happening because nobody even brought it up. Well, and what actually is the threat of countries forming an alliance to not have war? Like... Why is that? Why would that even be considered a bad thing? I don't. Well, it, it's. I mean, it's complicated because I know. <laughs> but here's. But I mean, I hear this myth all the time. People, well, NATO promised Russia. Um, no, NATO never. Boris Yeltsin Russia. tried to get Bill Clinton. This is and a declassified, declassified White House conversation. Yeltsin's an interesting guy, too. I mean, if mm -hmm. if you're listening to this and you're kind of interested in the collapse of the Soviet Union and what happens in those years right after it, Boris Yeltsin, you know, former mayor of Moscow, kind of becomes the head of Russia. And then there's a coup attempt. And we all kind of watched it, connecting back to our news issues. We all kind of watch it live on CNN right. as it's unfolding. And it's like, what does this mean? But Yeltsin tried to get Clinton to sign on to a gentleman's agreement that no former member of the USSR would be allowed to enter NATO. Bill Clinton's response to Boris Yeltsin was as follows, quote, I can't make commitments on behalf of NATO, and I'm not going to be in the position myself of vetoing NATO expansion with respect to any country, much less letting you or anyone else do so. NATO operates by consensus. And there are lots of countries in NATO. The United States is not. Yeah. Well, that's what Bill Clinton basically says. Yeah, is we're like, just I one. Can't make decisions. We're just one country. Yeah. We're not going to. It's also him kind of saying, why are you asking me? Now right. I don't have to accept responsibility asking, for this. Asking daddy. Um, so there's no existing agreement. Even There's not even a gentleman's agreement. That this wouldn't happen. Right. There's not, well, there's not even, a, yeah, there's not like a, even a mutual understanding. Um, NATO is a defensive pact. It is not an offensive pact, as yes, I talked about before. So if Greece decided to invade Malta, <laughs> no other NATO member would have to come to Greece's assistance. Right. Well, and that's why it gets hairy in Iraq, right? It does. But the 9-11 excuses that Iraq, th there's this excuse that Iraq is involved somehow. Right. Um, so NATO's a defensive pact. It's not an offensive pact. Um, so the mere idea that some a country like the Ukraine joining NATO 
means now NATO has an easier way to invade Russia. Right. It's silly. Well, that's what not NATO's not designed to do that. That's not its well, intent. And that's the whole thing in this current conflict is that he doesn't Putin does not want Ukraine to join NATO because then they could actually really fight back. I mean, they're fighting back, which is like mm-hmm. incredible. But then if they were an allied NATO member, Russia would be just completely stopped immediately. Right. And Mm -hmm. they don't want they don't want to be stopped. Like Putin wants to bring back the USSR. He wants to get the old band back together and he doesn't want NATO in being involved. And I think that from their perspective, from the Russian perspective, is like, look, this is always ours to begin with. Um, and we don't want NATO involved, but it's like, no, they're an independent democratically elected country. Like it's not yours. Um, so the Helsinki final act, 1975 charter of Paris, 1990 NATO, Russia founding act of 97 and the charter for European security in 99, all like reinforce the idea that Ukraine is a sovereign state and they have a right to make its own security agreements and arrangements. There's no, you'll hear people mention the Bucharest summit, um, which is there is an expression of the plan that Ukraine will at some point become a member of NATO. And then on the flip side, you'll have the Minsk agreement mentioned. Right. And it's this, to protect against aggression. So here's an NATO, imminent threat of it. Right. So here's NATO's response to kind of Russian accusations that NATO is trying to encircle Russia. First of all, pull up a map and look at Russia. Only 6% of Russia's land borders touch NATO countries. The overwhelming majority of their land borders touch non-NATO countries. So even if NATO suddenly decided it was an offensive, aggressive organization, the vast majority of Russian territory is not bordering a NATO member state. Well, and it doesn't want to, NATO doesn't want to, here's the difference, right? NATO doesn't want to expand by creating, by gaining territory necessarily, but it's about gaining an alliance with independent countries. Mm -hmm. For security. For for security. security. Well, it's, it's also for a commitment to, to peace, you know, it's that's what it is. And, you know, I've what the thing I've heard floated around um, and, and I I hesitate to spread it. But is the is this idea is like, oh, NATO is trying to be one world government. Like, No, they're not governed by one government. It has nothing to do with that. It's every just, member of every member of NATO maintains their sovereignty. They maintain. And that's the diff, right? Like Russia's doing the exact opposite of that. And if people understood the history of it, so like NATO is organized, like you said, defensively, and it's in response to North Korea invading South Korea in 1950. And the organizational structure of NATO is we need to stop Soviet influence and expansion, territorial expansion on sovereign nations. It's an attempt to protect nations as being independent. It's Ooh. not to collect territory and bring everybody under one government. That's actually the opposite of what NATO is. And when I hear this spread around, it's very frustrating because it is so ignorant of what the purpose of NATO is. And, and then as a matter of fact, Russia is trying to do Russia is trying to take away a sovereign nation's uh, right to govern themselves, right? Yeah. Well, so this Article 5 and 9-11 that you had mentioned, and this is something that people throw out, you know, that it was an aggressive act on NATO's part. So in 2001, for the very first time ever, Article 5 of NATO gets invoked because 9-11 is viewed as an attack on the United States. And the way NATO's charter works is an attack on one is an attack against all. Um, And they initially target Afghanistan, but expand that targeting to Iraq because it's fits under this umbrella on the world of war uh, against terror, right? War on terror. But I would say that that's a, like I said earlier, a pretty hairy connection. It's, it's and an it edge did, to case. me, it was not defensive. It seemed like offensive to me. Um, sure. 
I mean, sure. we can argue. No, uh, I mean, I, I, I think the invasion argue, of, but I think that it was it was one of those moments where it's like, okay, you're overstepping what the purpose of this organization was. I think in that case, I think the, I think the attack on Afghanistan's well rationalized. I think I it's agree. Justified. I agree, Afghanistan, but I don't think Iraq. Right. Well, you have to think about at that point is until we get more documents declassified. I, even though we all kind of suspect or think we know everybody realized there weren't weapons of mass destruction there, I would want to see a little more concrete evidence. Do, do people really believe that or, or do people believe Saddam Hussein is just hiding them really well? And we'll find them once we get in there. I don't know. Um, but okay, so let's say that there were weapons of mass destruction. Well, we know we had, it, sold, we had sold them some during the Iran-Iraq okay, war. But what the purpose of NATO is, as we've said, is that we respond to offensive. It's NATO is supposed to respond to aggression. And Iraq had not attacked mm-hmm. a NATO country. Well, the Bush so doc- under those. But the Bush doctrine becomes, if somebody's going to attack you, you attack them preemptively. Yeah, but Bush doesn't run NATO. Right, but it becomes the United States position, I think. But the United States doesn't run NATO. But it's one voice, and it's a voice that influences some other voices. It's an influential voice, but I'm saying I think that that was an overstep, and and. I think we'll look back on that and say, like, wow, that was. I mean, I already think we have looked back on it and said it was a mistake, but. Is that perhaps one of the apprehensions of, of Russia to say like, hey, you know, actually in the past, NATO has acted without a country showing aggression? No, I think NATO's a convenient... I don't think they're thinking through any of that. I think NATO's a convenient boogeyman. He's a convenient... It's a convenient boogeyman for Putin to point right. and well, say NATO. Well, who wants to get the Soviet Union back? You pause there for a second. You pause there for a second. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, it is. It's a convenient boogeyman. It's a scapegoat, right? Like Putin was going to do what Putin was going to do despite NATO or not, right? So I do think that. All right. So what were you saying? So that, yeah, that it's a scape. NATO is a boogeyman, a scapegoat, no doubt. But it all boils down to Putin wants to invade this sovereign nation and he wants the rest of the world to look away. So here's the question. Why does he want to invade? Because t- he wants more territory. He wants to get the Soviet Union back. Um, economically, Russia is suffering, I think, economically. And to bring in Ukraine back into the economy, I think, might bolster their position globally. Um, it might set the stage for other former Soviet um, nations to, you know, to kind of get welcomed back into the fold. Um, But I mean, also he's just, he's a, I don't think that there's a really good logical reason for it. I mean, I think that he's, I think there's a, I think there's a very logical reason for it. He can't afford to have a successful democracy bordering Russia. You think that it's becomes a threat to Moscow? I think it is. But I think it, we're already. Kind of silly, I think though, we're because... already. I think we're already seeing it. I think we're already seeing a willingness to protest in Russia that we haven't seen in a long time, and I think this is why Putin's willing to risk it all. Because first of all, if he succeeds, it's glorious Russia and it's restoration of kind of historical Russia, and everybody's happy in Russia, and that's great. And it takes pressure off those domestic issues. Um, yeah, but I think to to say that like okay, a, a country bordering Russia that's a successful democracy is a threat. That kind of it kind of gives this idea that well, people in Russia don't know about democracy. Of course, no, they no, do. no. It's a threat to Putin and his fellow oligarchs. Oligarchs, because do you think that people would suddenly say, "Oh, we want democracy"? Well, I think it when it's your next door neighbor and you see how it's actually functioning, 
you may get ideas. And it's also a lot easier to get Wi-Fi, for example, mm-hmm. broadcast across a border that where there's the internet's not being controlled. And and Ukraine is a large country. It's over 30 million people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the large, largest European it's, country. It's the largest European country. And I think it is, I think Putin cannot brook that country existing next to Russia. Um, which is why he brought up those accusations that he was going to go denazify, denazify Ukraine, um, which is hilarious. Because it's hilarious because Zelensky's Jewish. Zelensky's Jewish. Um, Ukraine it's does insulting. have a comp- Ukraine does have a complicated history during World War II with Germany, and you know maybe that's something for another time. But, yeah, but Ukraine, Ukraine has a very complicated history with Russia or with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, if you think about what happens in the 1930s, where millions of Ukrainians are starved to death. Oh, by yes. Yeah. This, the Holodomor, which I think is important to, to yeah, cover. Stalin, Stalin does not like what's going on there. And he basically starves them. Um, he does starve them. Yes. And so it's. You know, I understand from one perspective why Putin's trying to do this. I think he overestimated. First, I think he underestimated how Western nations would react. And underestimated Ukraine's resolve to remain independent. And I think he underestimated Ukraine's both a political and national level response as well as an individual level response. And I think he overestimated the power of his own military. Oh, yeah. They can't even um, gas up their rigs. Well, they're digging this morning. The latest satellite image shows Russian soldiers are now digging berms. They're basically digging trenches, which means, you know, that's not a good sign. That's not a good For sign. anything being over soon. But right. um, it's an interesting moment because... I think this may be the inevitable. We hate to talk about inevitability in history. This may be the inevitable outcome of a former KGB agent becoming the de facto dictator of Russia oh, the last absolutely. 20 years. But what I here's what I don't understand. It it is absolutely perplexing to me. And I think we covered it a little bit last time, but it's like how the United States has become so divided about Russia. You know, are after, we? Yes. Are we really divided yes. or is there yes. a. I think that there is a, an alarming percentage of the population that sides with Russia. In their aggression against Ukraine? In their. Yeah, and with Putin and. I mean, as an historian, I can understand the logic that Putin's using, that doesn't mean I approve of it, but I can understand how he makes logical leaps and comes with an argument about why Russia has the right to invade. I disagree with it, but I can understand the argument he's making. But I don't understand Americans who are supportive of it. After Russia has been the boogeyman for decades and all of the people of that generation who grew up taking shelter under desks, thinking that they're going to get bombed by Russia or that the was Soviet my, Union. That was my generation. I know it was in the generation before you. How are those same people uh, reposting Russian propaganda? Well, you know, um, Jan- January 6th, 2021. I know that, but it's it's so disheartening to me. And it's so sad because... They are victims of a calculated Russian campaign to divide Americans, which they have been trying I mean, to do we can't, since the 1950s. But I think we can't disobey it on Russia's doorstep either. Like we've got certain leaders, including a former president, who wants to be dictator of the United States. That's right. what he wants to be. Donald Trump wants to be dictator. January right. and he 6th, respects Putin, is what he says. January right? 6th was an attempted coup to circumvent the lawful transfer, uh, the lawful counting of votes for the new president. 
Donald not a Trump, fan of democracy. Donald Trump is not a fan of democracy at all. He's not a fan of the rule of law. I mean, his whole career is him abusing the law um, and he, finding he ways said around that he it. He was the law and order candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think he is taking advantage of a segment of the population that their reaction to the way the world has changed in the 21st century is to go to daddy and have daddy in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, And daddy tells us everything. And that way we don't have to worry about anything Um, because daddy's taking care of it all. And, you know, it's an authoritarian impulse that I thought had disappeared in the United States, but I think we just deluded ourselves. I think it's been there all along. Um, but it's disgusting, right? I mean, it, it's the thing. It's like, you know, if you're going to support Putin and you're going to support the invasion of a sovereign nation, first of all, don't bring up Iraq to defend Putin's actions. You know, you. I was trying uh, to rationalize. No, no, no. I'm not talking about you. Oh. I'm talking about people will say, well, what about Iraq? And it's like, yeah, that was wrong, too. Oh, you mean, oh, I've, I have heard people say that, right? Yeah, yeah they were okay, like, well, the United that. States did this. And it's like, yeah, and that was wrong. We shouldn't have done it. But that the United does- States, okay, I'm not trying to defend because it was wrong, but it was, it was a different situation, right? Like the United States wasn't trying to take over and say Iraq is now a part of the United States. Right. The United States... The United States Never. does love toppling governments, though, and instilling yes. their own puppet it, governments. It does. I, I know, I know, I know. But the United States never purposely targeted civilian targets. Hmm. The Russians are targeting civilian targets. What is sad about this, though, and we'll I'll go back to what I was saying earlier, is about race. We care about this. Because Ukrainian people are considered white. Because, and I'm not But they wouldn't have been, they would not have been considered white before World War One. Okay, but like, they have attained whiteness now. Okay. Right? Sure. And there are so many instances of the United States going in and toppling governments, invading countries, all this kind of stuff of in brown countries, non-English speaking countries, non-Christian countries. And we really just kind of don't give a hoot about it. And I'm not saying that it's that it's right what's going on right now. It's not right, it, even in the slightest bit. It has to be stopped. It's disgusting. It makes me really sad. But our interest in it lies in the, the colonizers club. It lies in that background. It lies in that desire to protect Western, um, you know, Western nations, democracies, all this kind of stuff of like who – who do we privilege in terms of who who deserves our protection, has the who United deserves S- our sympathy? Has the United States gotten better about not necessarily toppling governments in the global south? <sighs> I mean, what, since if we when? set the if we set the 80s as the high water mark, the point where we were the most meddlesome. We've been pretty meddlesome in the 21st century in, in the Middle East. Mm. Like putting apart Iraq and Afghanistan, putting those aside. How can you put those aside? Putting those aside, how meddlesome we've been in South America, Sub-Saharan Africa. We've been pretty. We've been meddlesome in South America and in Central but, America, but not as much as Venezuela, we used to be. But not as much as we used Columbia. to be. Not as much as we. Colombia is a partner state. Partner, they're not a member; they're a partner with NATO, global partner. I think we have done a much better job the last couple of decades. But here's the thing that I'll say: it's not about well, the United States did this, so Putin should be able to do that. That's it, there; it's all wrong, right? I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what you were saying originally. Is like, well, don't that's bring the up thing, all and these that's other things, right? It, it, it's yes, the United States at one point has military advisors or insurgent advisors embedded in virtually every country in Central America. Mm -hmm. Um, The United States is involved in internal disagreements across South America. 
The United States' involvement is out in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, is a much more complicated thing. Um, Southeast Asia, though, the United States is heavily involved in as well. Um, and I think those are interesting conversations. What I'm saying is this. None of that excuses Russia's behavior. You know, just because other countries have done something like this, it doesn't give Russia the right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, I think... So, I mean, I have to admit, before I started doing research for this podcast episode, I and before Russia formally invaded Ukraine, I really was wondering if NATO needed to exist anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a problem that it exists if it's if it's not acting, right? But here's my thing, right? Like, it does exist and it's like doing nothing. Um but I think it, well, that's the thing. It's it's one of those things. It's like you want it when you need it, but maybe you think you don't want it when you don't need it. I think this thing is that, that Putin's invasion of Ukraine now means any conversation of kind of removing NATO as something the United States is involved in, that conversation is now done. We're not going to have that conversation again for quite a while. Well, but what I would say is like NATO is supposed to be reactive to you know, aggression. And it's like, okay, it Russia hasn't directly hit a NATO country, which is the crux of this entire thing, right? And like that Zelensky wants to be a part of NATO. That's what's causing all this. Like, or not, that's what the excuse is, right? The scapegoat. Well, but- Zelensky, Zelensky has now said that he's willing to, um, what is it? Um, to... Uh, delay Ukraine's entry into NATO for an indeterminate period. Yeah, but the point of NATO is to stop aggression from the Russians against sovereign nations. And like, I think not having a strong response to this bullshit that he's pulling is a major mistake. But we do have a strong response. I don't think we do. What do you, do you want a no-fly zone? Yes. Well, a no-fly zone means U.S. planes are going to be engaged with Russian planes. I know, and I know which, what Biden said. And then that gets us dragged into a war with Russia, which could very but quickly could, accelerate to a thermonuclear ex- war. Right, that's bad. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Ukraine but, is not a member state. But how? But how many things are we going to allow him to do under the threat of, well, I'm going to nuke you, I'm going to nuke you, I'm going to nuke you. I mean, like Hitler invaded France and took over the French government. And we I, just sat and watched and sat I mean, and watched. And my sat prediction and watched. is this, and I think we talked about this the other day. My prediction is this. I think Putin is going to have an accident or get a cold. Right. We did talk about this, yeah. Or something like he, that. He, the, the economic sanctions, right. We have had a strong response in terms of economic sanctions and the oligarchs are suffering. Well, and have you seen like Cisco and all these internet backbone companies? They are cutting Russia out. They but do are you see visceral. the Koch brothers aren't? Is that surprising? No, it's not, but it's disgusting. They're neo. They're neocon capitalists. They, it's, there's money to be made there. Why should they leave? Burger King also is not pulling out of Russia. So if you eat at Burger King, you support Putin. But I don't eat a Whopper support totalitarianism. That's going to, that, that ends the fry debate right there. I mean, so you're right. I, I am not a war hawk. I am not somebody who's interested in, you know, starting conflicts or anything like that. But I do find Putin's actions to be, very reminiscent of what Hitler was doing and tried to do and did um, in the lead up to the second world war. And, and a lot of us just sat back and we're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Right. Like the Russian military is weak. They're weak. I don't think the West fully understood that. I mean, maybe somewhere in the Pentagon, maybe somebody in the, the NSA or some, maybe somebody did kind of know there was a potential that it wasn't as strong as people thought it was. 
the whole world knows now that the Russian military is kind of the, <laughs> the sick man of Europe, right? Yeah. Um, but they've got all of these dinosaur all the Russian, weapons, right? Right. Where are all the Russian hackers? That's interesting, right? Because Anonymous is like taking them out. Well, and it just so happens, do you know where the tech epicenter of Europe is right now? It's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they have a whole army of hackers that are working for the government, or not for the government, or working in concert with organizations, well, but also working independently yeah. to do this. And this is the thing. I, th- I think what we're seeing is a new form of war. Yes. Digital that, warfare. That you just don't have, it doesn't have to be planes in the sky shooting each other out. It can be these other things as well. Do you I, see Google Maps was down today? Was that a hacking attempt? I or? don't know. I don't know. Seems kind uh, of odd, but I, I, I agree. I keep telling, cause the kids keep seeing stuff on, you know, the TV, like, Oh, is there going to be a war? And they're like all scared. Right. And I was like, it's going to, it's different. Like war now is different, I think. And, and it is, it's digital, but I, I worry about hacks and attacks on the banking system, the electrical grid or water. There's so many different things that can be hacked. Right. And I, and I worry about that. Um, Did you notice your TikTok feed change today? To what? So all those dancers from Russia that usually post on TikTok, TikTok's banned in Russia now. I okay, so I haven't been on TikTok today. So you should look. You're not going to see any of those people that dance like the I don't guys. Have Russian dancers on my. Oh, they're all. Well, I don't know what. I don't know what's going on with your algorithm, but I don't um, have Russian dancers on my page. Like they do these choreographed dances and they I see choreographed of, dances, but I didn't realize they were Russian. A lot of them are in Russian. Um, I, I mean, it's, I am to get back to what I was saying earlier. I, before this happened, I really questioned whether NATO needed to exist. Obviously it does need to exist. Um, because I think it makes Putin realize he cannot simply send units into Poland Right. Are you back? So it's one of the reasons need to exist. It needs to exist. It's the reason Putin will not send units into Poland, no matter what. Because he does know that if he were to move into Poland, Poland is a member of NATO, and there would be an overwhelming military response. Do you um, think he wants an overwhelming military response? No, I response? don't think he does. Here's he the thing. He has his family in a bomb shelter in Siberia. Okay, he does have that, but he wants them to live in a world that's worth living in. And if thermonuclear war breaks out, that's the end. I mean, the models, the Earth becomes uninhabitable. Um. He doesn't want that. He wants to go down and this is great Russian hero. He may be Yeah, but sick. the people in Russia are not into it. Well, he may be understand. right. They don't seem I to be I think he is sick. It. I think he, there's something wrong with him. I mean, um, I mean, a lot of people are now analyzing. There was that weird meeting he had with Macron where they mm-hmm. sat at the, t- the f- like 20 foot long table. That and was, it was so weird. It's just very When if you look at his mannerisms, he looks like he's like shaking, like he's got Mm -hmm. like a Parkinson's kind of a thing Mm -hmm. or something going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He looks weak. I mean, here's the And what's interesting, he's always wanted to be fawned over as a leader. And it's like now everybody's fawning over Zelensky. That must be driving him nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you saw the thing where Zelensky did the thing with the mic. No. So Putin had a press conference but it was clearly green screened over something else because mm-hmm. his hand like moved through a microphone because oh. it wasn't really there Zelensky when he was giving his mm-hmm. purposely touched the microphone and moved it to show I'm not green screening this I I'm really right am here. where I'm telling you I am Wow. Um, I mean I will say this we hate hypotheticals we don't like to play hypotheticals um, thank God Donald Trump is not president right now because the U S I don't think would be party to any of these sanctions, but Donald Trump paved the way for this to happen. Oh yeah. And stripped so much of our 
cooperation, alliances, mm -hmm. relationships with our partners in Europe. Mm -hmm. He he wrecked and weakened those partnerships for well, four he didn't wreck years. Them. He tried to wreck he them, but they, we were we were looking bad. But this has kind of reinvigorated that. But what I'm saying is, I think if he were president today, the United States would I think be, we'd be a coalition force with Russia. Maybe. I don't think we'd be participating in any of the economic sanctions. I agree. I agree. Um, and we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be spending our time um, gathering intelligence because the United States knew Russia was about to invade Ukraine. And Joe and Biden was telling prior. us, Joe Biden was telling us and yeah. people were making fun of him saying, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Well, I was making a joke like, what, did they send you a calendar invite? But they, we knew our intelligence was on top yeah, of that. They had 100,000 soldiers amassed at the border. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah, do but that. But we wouldn't have been spending our time looking at that or reporting on that had, had Trump been president. Right, right. Um, but um, I, I saw something yesterday, I think it was on Reddit, where it was talking about all of the aid that we're sending, the military aid, and we're sending all this technology, this military technology and, and everything to support. And someone wrote, the Russia's about to find out why the U.S. doesn't have universal health care. Because we fund our military so oh, much. Oh, oh. <laughs> like, Russia's about to find out why. And it's because like, we have some really intense military arsenal and equipment and resources. And, like, well, we've we're been involved in wars. Ukraine. We've been involved in active wars for the last 20 some odd years. It's so. our business. It's our business. Uh, that's kind of gross. <laughs> like, but it, but uh, that's what I'm saying. Like why we don't have universal health care. Because like 80% of our tax funds go to tax money. Because go to right. the military industrial complex. Well, we are way off of NATO at this point, but I think but hopefully, not really. not really. Um, hopefully, you know, you learned something today about NATO from us. If not, hopefully you're, you're already an expert. Um, <laughs> I like to think that we taught somebody something today. Maybe. All righty. Well, until next time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff.